So good to be with you. First of all, Alex, thank you for your, your kind words. You can open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Um, by the way, this is the first time I've been in your, your new home, and I really like it. How about you? Yeah, you like it? I've, I'm tempted to come back on December 18th and just hear that thing. Uh, have you played that yet? How did it sound? It was good? All right, maybe I'll be back on December 18th then. Uh, when I got word on Thanksgiving Day that um, it looked like Tim wasn't going to be well enough to preach this Sunday, uh, that came through Jared Mellinger. Uh, by the way, I bring greetings from Covenant Fellowship Church, obviously. Um, I, I wanted to come, if that would serve you, uh, because I wanted to thank you, Risen Hope Church, for being a part of our family of churches. Uh, I so appreciate what Alex had to say. We, we can do far much more together. We can be more faithful together. And your, your contribution as a church is strengthening us as a family of churches. Let me just give you some ways that I see that. Uh, first of all, just your gospel presence here in Prospect Park, in this, this part of Delaware County. Your faithfulness to preach the gospel and to apply the gospel and to reach out with the gospel, that strengthens us as a family of churches. But your, your impact goes not just beyond this local area, it goes outside the states. And I didn't know Pat and Lynn were going to be here today, I didn't, but I wanted to thank you for sending Pat and Lynn to Costa Rica um, because they are strengthening churches uh, that are either in Sovereign Grace or pursuing Sovereign Grace in Costa Rica. Pat and Lynn have specifically strengthened the church in Cartago with Alan Mange and, and, uh, and his church there. They continue to serve and strengthen churches pursuing adoption into Sovereign Grace. One in San Jose and one in uh, Playa Azul, if I said that right. And uh, so that's because you as a church had the faith to send them. And Pat and Lynn, thank you for going. And thank you for how you are strengthening our partnership in Costa Rica. T Tim has been involved over the years in strengthening the church in, in uh, Croatia. So those are just some of the ways that I wanted to point out to you how you are strengthening uh, sovereign grace as a family of churches. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a part of sovereign grace. Okay, I had you open your Bibles to... Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to look at the first four verses in just a moment, and they, they hold up for us the one we just sang about, our Savior Jesus Christ. As I was preparing again this morning to preach this sermon, I, I just have trouble finding words that can adequately express the honor and privilege I feel to preach about the one I love the most and the one that you love the most, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Risen Hope Church wouldn't exist. Covenant Fellowship Church wouldn't exist. Sovereign Grace Churches wouldn't exist without Christ. And we exist to make much of Him. For the, gate, for the great cause of Christ, of preaching the gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation. So it is, is Jesus that we're going to focus on today. He is the focus of this sermon. And in preaching this message, I'm also going to reference a couple of 
sections in our statement of faith. If you're a guest here, first of all, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, We as a denomination and Risen Hope Church, we have a, a statement of faith. It's really a confession of the doctrinal beliefs that we believe and that shape our churches. You can read this on the Risen Hope website, by the way. And if you haven't read the editor's edition, I'm so grateful you put the editor's edition on your website, Alex and Rick. You've got to read the footnotes. Oh, they are rich, and they will cause you to worship Jesus. So we're going to reference a couple of sections in in this sermon. Those two sections are the person of Jesus Christ and the saving work of Jesus Christ that you'll find in the statement of faith. Title of my message, The Doctrine of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. May God bless the preaching of His Word. The first 1,000 years or so of church history, we find theologians and church leaders working out the orthodox theology that we find in our Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith today. One of those historic events was the Council of Nicaea, which was convened on May 20th, 325 A.D. The main agenda item for the council was to debate the divinity of Jesus Christ. You see, there was a man by the name of Arius who had spread false teaching about Christ, that he was not co-eternal with God the Father, and therefore... Christ was not fully God. So as this council convened, a man by the name of Alexander was assigned to be the principal spokesperson who argued for the full deity of Christ, while a man by the name of Eusebius argued for the Arian view. Now at the beginning of this council, it seems that most of the leaders were not very well informed on the issue. However, Their neutrality rapidly evaporated when Arius' views were explained more fully by Eusebius. As he proceeded to explain the Arian position that denied the full deity of Christ, those in the the room, they became so angry that they grabbed Eusebius' notes, they tore them up and they threw them on the floor. Now, On the face of it, that might seem like an overreaction. But one must bear in mind that the men, many of the men sitting in that room were still bearing scars 
of of persecution because of their devotion to Christ. The 5th century historian Theodoret writes, Paul, who was there from Neo-Caesarea, had been deprived the use of both of his hands because he was persecuted with a red-hot iron. Other leaders in that room had had their right eye gouged out, while others sitting there had lost their right arm. In short, writes Theodoret, the council looked like an assembled army of martyrs. Why would these men so fiercely contend for the full deity of Jesus Christ? Because they knew that an orthodox Christology regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ is foundational to all of theology. J.I. Packer writes, Christology is the true hub round which the wheel of theology revolves and to which its separate spokes must be each correctly anchored if the wheel is not to get bent. Historic Christianity's most distinctive convictions are decisively shaped and determined by a proper understanding of the identity of Christ. Our statement of faith, your statement of faith, is filled with Christianity's most distinctive convictions which are decisively shaped and determined by the the person and the life and the death and the resurrection and the consummation of Jesus Christ. Which is why we write this in the online introduction of our statement of faith. This is what we write. The statement of faith also makes explicit what is foundational to our doctrinal commitments. Here's what's foundational. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the primary passion and the driving influence in our church's common life, worship, and outreach. So what is your primary passion as a church? And what is our primary passion as a family of churches? It is this. It is Christ and Him crucified. What is the driving influence in your common life and our common life together? It's living for the glory of Christ. What motivates our outreach to the lost? It's telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, Christology is foundational to your doctrinal commitments as a church. And because theology determines, really does determine how we live, Christology is foundational in how we live our common life together. Now, our text is one of many that you will find in Scripture that gives us a proper understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ and His work in the Gospel. And The author of Hebrews begins this letter by telling us this, that God's progressive revelation has been completed in Jesus Christ. Look again at Verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The point is this, that in these last days in which you and I live, no more Revelation is needed to supplement what God has fully revealed to us in His Son because Jesus has fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies about Him and all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. Amen? 
And what God says by His Son does not contradict or replace what He has said to us in the Old Testament. Rather, it completes God's progressive revelation. See, Christology is foundational to not only understand the progressive redemptive story that we find in our Bibles, it's foundational to the primary passion and driving influence here at Risen Hope Church in all of the churches in Sovereign Grace. So three reasons why Christology is foundational. Number one, Christology is foundational to knowing the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, we see two distinct distinct natures, one divine and one human, which are inseparably joined together in the one person, Jesus Christ. So based on Scripture, the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. decisively concluded that Jesus Christ is fully God. And our text is one biblical evidence for the deity of Christ. Look again at Verse 2. Begin reading in the second half of verse 2. Whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. In other words, in other words Jesus Christ existed before the creation of the world and that Because He existed before the creation of the world, we know that He is the pre-existent God. As we say in our statement of faith, He is the eternal Son. So sorry, Arius, your teaching was wrong. And this verse 3 gives us further proof of the deity of Christ. Look again at verse 3. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He, Jesus, upholds the universe by the Word of His power. Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And He is the Almighty God that upholds the universe by the Word of His power. You see, Scripture consistently reveals the divine nature of Jesus Christ, which is why we write it this way in our statement of faith. This is what we say. In the fullness of time, God the Father sent His eternal Son. That's what we're going to celebrate here just in a few weeks. The sending of the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world as Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ... And when God sent the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, through the incarnation into this world, at that moment, Christ took on a fully human nature. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Mark's Gospel tells us that He was born of the Virgin Mary. In this stunning act of humility, And think about that this Christmas. In this stunning act of humility, God became man. When Jesus took on full human nature with all of its attributes and all of its frailties and all of its temptations, and yet as the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verse 15, He was without sin. 
John's Gospel says it differently. He says the Word became flesh. Revealing that the divine, eternal Son added a human nature and thus now, and not just now, forevermore, subsists in two natures which are inseparably joined together in the one person of Jesus Christ. And so we capture that theological truth this way in our statement of faith. In this union, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in the one person of the Divine Son without confusion, mixture, or change. That that foundational truth that Christ exists with two distinct natures that are inseparably joined together in the one person of Jesus Christ, it helps us all to avoid historical heresies. Things like that move from Jesus having two natures to Jesus being two persons. That's Nestorianism. That's what it's called historically. Or from Jesus being one person to just having one nature. That's called Eutychianism. It also explains this. It explains how on the one hand, Jesus, the Almighty God, can uphold the universe by the word of His power. And on the other hand, hunger and thirst, and be tempted, and grow weary, and even die. Are you weary this morning? If you are, Jesus knows your weariness. He experienced weariness. He was asleep in that boat during the storm because he was so tired, wasn't he? And yet, he had the power to wake up and calm that storm. And if He's got that kind of power, He can meet you in your weakness today. And He can draw near and He can strengthen you. Are you carrying a lingering sadness or grief? Jesus feels it. He experienced sadness and grief. He wept at Lazarus' tomb, didn't He? And yet He had the power to raise Lazarus and call him out of that tomb, didn't He? And so he tells you that he has the kind of power that your shepherd, your great shepherd, can draw near to you today and in his power comfort you in your sadness. Are you lonely? He gets it. The night before he was, before his death, all of his friends abandoned him at his arrest. And yet, because of his death, If you're in Christ, this morning He calls you a friend. And He draws near to you. And He comforts you in your loneliness. Those temptations that you and I face every day, He understands every one of them. The Bible says that He was tempted in every way. He understands. And yet... Because He died for our sin. When we do sin, He doesn't tower over us in condemnation. Rather, through His death on the cross, He, he reaches out and He extends, his, extends mercy and forgiveness. Because He died for me and for you for our sin. See, this two-nature doctrine of 
the person of Jesus Christ is not just some abstract reality. It helps us to know Jesus better and to actually experience His care as our great shepherd. This two-nature doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ is not only important an important theological truth, that we need to understand it's also the means by which God effected salvation for His people. So the Son of God, in obedience to His Father, acts in and through both of His natures to accomplish salvation for sinners like you and me. So let me ask you this morning, how do you know Jesus? You know Him as God the Son incarnate, fully God and fully man, and is the only one able to be your all-sufficient Savior. Which is why we write it this way in our statement of faith. As God's incarnate Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, inaugurated the kingdom of God, fulfilling God's saving purposes and all the Old Testament prophecies about the one to come. He is the seed of the woman. He is the seed of Abraham, the prophet like Moses, the priest in the order of Melchizedek, the son of David, the suffering servant, and God's appointed Messiah. See, brothers and sisters, there are portions of this statement of faith. You know what they do? They just preach. They preach. And so get this and read it and preach Christ to yourself. Now we must theologically know the person of Jesus Christ rightly as one person who acted through both His divine and human natures to understand His redemptive work in the Gospel rightly. John Stott says, if the essence of the atonement is substitution, the theological inference is that it is impossible to hold to the historic doctrine of the cross without holding to the historic doctrine of Jesus Christ as the one and only God-man and mediator. The person and work of Jesus Christ, they, they belong together. Because if He was not who the apostles say He was, then He could not have accomplished what they say He did. The incarnation that we're about to celebrate is indispensable to the atonement. See, we believe this. We believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, and therefore, He was the only one who could accomplish what the Father had sent Him to do. Which leads to the second point. Second reason why Christology is foundational. Number two, Christology is foundational to understand the work of Jesus Christ. Our text clearly references that work in verse Three. Look again at the second half of verse 3. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. The One who upholds the universe by the Word of His power is the same One who humbled Himself, becoming a man to serve as our mediator, dying a substitutionary death on the cross. And by so doing, through His shed blood, He made purification 
for my sins and for your sins. You see, Jesus humbled himself in both life and in death, both of which were substitutionary in nature and acting in and through his human and divine natures, only Jesus, who was tempted in every way, and yet was without sin, only Jesus lived a perfect life, and therefore only Jesus could offer a perfect sacrifice on the cross for my sin and your sin, doing that in our place, making purification by His blood for our sins. What's stunning is that hundreds and hundreds of years before the prophet Isaiah told us about this in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 he meaning Jesus was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace See, Scripture teaches the penal substitutionary nature of the atonement. That word penal, it means penalty. It means punishment. So, penal substitution means this. It means that someone takes your punishment for you. That's what it means. I don't know if you remember earlier in this year, it was in the spring, I believe in March, the military and the nation of Miramar overthrew the government. And there were stories coming out of Miramar during that time, and I'll never forget this picture and story that I read. The citizens were protesting against this military takeover in Miramar, against what the soldiers had done, what the army had done, and there was a picture that came out, and it's a group of Miramar citizens, a number of them gathered together, and they're protesting. And on the other side of the citizens are the Miramar soldiers, Rifles drawn, aimed, apparently ready to shoot into the crowd. And there's this nun that walks between these two crowds. And she faces the soldiers and she gets down on her knees. And she stretches out her hands like this and she says, Kill me instead. See, that that picture gives us just a little bit of glimpse of what happened at the cross. Jesus laid down on that cross and He stretched out His his arms and He looked at His Father and He said, kill me instead. Jesus, Jesus said to His Father, the punishment they deserve for their many sins, give that punishment to Me instead. Your righteous wrath that they deserve for their many transgressions, pour that wrath out upon Me. Pour all of that wrath out upon me instead. See, the penal substitutionary nature of the atonement is the heart of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And because critics have attacked the penal substitutionary atonement of the Gospel for years, it is one that we must fight and contend for. Which is why we have it in our statement of faith so that we can protect our churches from heresy. And this is what we write about that truth. 
in His substitutionary death on behalf of His people. Christ offered Himself by the Spirit as a perfect sacrifice, which satisfied the demands of God's law by paying the full penalty, not some of it, the full penalty for their sins. On the cross, Christ bore our sins. He took our punishment. He propitiated God's wrath. What that means is He, through His sacrifice, appeases God's wrath so that we will never know God's wrath. Vindicated God's righteousness. And by doing so, if you're a Christian here today, you are robed in the righteousness of Christ. And purchased our redemption in order that we might be reconciled to God. See, brothers and sisters, again, there are places in this statement of faith that just preach. One of the things we've talked about over the years in Sovereign Grace churches is preaching the gospel to ourselves. That's not something we came up with on our own. I think we learned that from Jerry Bridges. But this is one of the ways we can continue to be people who preach the gospel to ourselves is read sections like this in our statement of faith. Here's why I'm telling you all this. Risen Hope Church, I know you to be a people who believe the words that Jesus cried from the cross. Here are the words He cried. It is finished. And when God the Father raised Him from the dead three days later, vindicating Jesus' identity and saving work as the Messiah, we believe that the Father was pleased to accept Jesus' sacrifice for sin. A complete sacrifice for sin. We believe that no further sacrifice is needed. We believe that there is no good work that we can do that can be added to what Christ accomplished on the cross because His atoning work is entirely efficacious, which is a gift that we receive through faith and repentance. We believe this. We believe that when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, He looked at His Father and He said, salvation is done. The work of salvation has been completed. This is why the primary pa- this is why the this is the primary passion and influence in your church and in the churches in sovereign grace is the gospel of Jesus Christ because we believe this because we believe that he paid it all. Our sin that left a crimson stain. Oh he he washed it away. All of it away white as snow. Amen. Now, I would guess that most of you, if not all of you, you know that truth that I just preached. The question is, how does, how does Christology shape how we live? So that's my third and last point. Christology is foundational to live for Christ. To live for Christ means this. To live for Christ means that we are a people who stay centered on Christ. Because His work continues. Not not the work of salvation, but other work continues. Because He is our prophet and priest and king. As our great high priest, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says that Jesus now lives to make intercession for us, constantly pleading with the Father on our behalf. As Dane Ortland writes so succinctly, 
Christ's intercession reflects how profoundly personal our rescue is. Don't let that go by. Jesus died for you. Jesus rescued you. And right now, this is stunning. Right now, you know what He's doing? He's praying for you as your great high priest. From the Father's right hand, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit into our lives, empowering us to be victorious over sin and Satan and to empower the good works that He's given us to do. And when we do sin, and we do, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says that Christ is our advocate, standing at our side, constantly advocating our cause before the Father. And so John Bunyan captures it this way, Satan must be speechless after a plea from our advocate. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. When we are prone to wander, we are held fast because Christ is the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. Amen? When we are perplexed and not sure what God is doing in our life, we are people who are not driven to despair because we have a King who is governing the nations. And not just all the nations, this nation. And not just this, this, this nation, our lives as well. When we are rejected and marginalized for being Christians, and that's going to happen increasingly so, when we are rejected and marginalized for being Christians, we are not forsaken because we know that nothing will separate us from the love of God that we have in who? In Jesus Christ. When we are sorrowful because of loss and suffering, we are people who are yet always rejoicing because our great high priest is able to not only sympathize with our weaknesses, he is with us and actually bears our weaknesses with us. Amen. See, to live for Christ means that we are people who stay centered on Christ. Now let me close with this. I'm sure you're, you're seeing this. The world that we live in today defines itself by what it's against. It's true, isn't it? But we want to be people who know, we want people to know what we are for. And what are we for, brothers and sisters? We are for the supremacy of Christ in all of life. We are for Jesus being exalted in our homes, in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our communities. We are for seeking of the, glo the glory of the Lord and not our own fame in all that we do. By God's grace, we want to pursue an abiding joy in Christ, an overflowing gratitude for Christ, a growing obedience to Christ, and a sacrificial generosity motivated by Christ, which are all expressions that you and I are living for Christ. Why do we want to be known for this? Because... Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. Our sin that left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I must want to sing it, but that would not be good. Our sin that left a crimson stain, He 
washed it white as snow. Oh, praise the one who paid our debt and raised this life up from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. In fact, these verses here in Hebrews 1 that declare not only the person of Christ, but the work of Christ. And Jesus, with my brothers and sisters today, we, we thank you for leaving your glory and coming here, living a perfect life and dying a perfect death for our sins. And what's stunning is that is a work that is only ours by faith. And what is stunning is that you continue today to work on our behalf as you intercede for us, as you advocate for us. In response to all of that, all we can say is thank you. And we, we pray for grace, and I pray for Risen Hope Church, that this church will be known for what it's for, the supremacy of Christ in all of life. May grace fill this place and fill every person here and work and transform them more and more to be more like Christ. So that through these people's lives and through this church, Christ would receive all the glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.